3: They took away corn and they took away seeds that people were storing, and they took away bread that was in the oven, and they took away soup that was on the stove, and they took away vegetables, and they took away carrots and squash and beans, so that really people had nothing at all to eat.
4: That was Anne Applebaum discussing the Ukrainian famine.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, where the UK's best selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our interview today is with Anne Applebaum, an acclaimed writer and historian who specialises in the history of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. She is the author of numerous books, perhaps the best known of which is Gulag, her history of the Soviet camp system. Her latest book, entitled Red Famine, tells the story of the horrific Ukrainian famine of 1932-33, which was deliberately engineered by the Soviet leadership and resulted in several million deaths. I met up with Anne at the offices of her publisher Penguin in London to find out more about one of the darkest episodes of the 20th century. Your book devotes quite a lot of space at the front to the political situation in Ukraine prior to the famine. Um, how important was that to the events that then took place in the 1930s? So probably that's the most unusual thing about this book. Um, the prior books about the
3: famine might have gone back to earlier to the collectivization and to earlier in the in the to the 1920s. Um but my book actually starts in 1917 with the Ukrainian Revolution, which took place at the same time as the Russian Revolution. Um, and I felt that was actually important and maybe even critical to understanding the famine because the Ukrainian revolution was an attempt to create a sovereign Ukrainian state, and it failed, and it failed for a number of reasons. Mostly it failed because the Red Army, the combination really, the Red Army, the White Army, and other, um, other forces inside Ukraine at the time made it impossible for the state to succeed. Um, and eventually the Red Army won the civil war that, that, had, that resulted. But you need to know that there was this attempt to create a Ukrainian state because the famine was... Stalin's response to that, the famine was Stalin's response to that state, that desire for sovereignty, and it was his attempt to eliminate um, the peasantry whom he thought of as the kind of social basis of that state, and also simultaneously the Ukrainian intellectuals and Communist Party members who were also part of a wave of terror that took place at the same time as the famine. So you need to know what came before in order to know um, why it happened.
4: There was actually another famine that took place, again, which you cover in your book, in the early 1920s, that again impacted quite badly on Ukraine. Can we see many similarities between that and what happened in the 1930s?
3: Well, the 1920-21 famine is very interesting precisely because it it led to a different response on the part of the then Soviet government. I mean, so at that, that time it was Lenin who was still in charge um, and not Stalin as, as a decade later. Um, but the response to the 1920 famine was a a kind of the Soviet Union opening up to the world and asking for foreign help. And there was actually a huge American aid program um, led by Herbert Hoover, who later became president, and there were, you know, an effort from across Europe. There was a, there were several Jewish organizations that came in. Lots of different foreign groups came and offered famine aid and helped end the famine. And, of course, that's dramatically different from what happened in 1933, when not only did the Soviet Union not admit that there was a famine, they actually prevented any outside knowledge of it from getting out. They didn't want anyone to know about it. They discouraged any... Um, you know, for example, there was there were some Ukrainian groups across the border in Poland who wanted to help, and they absolutely discouraged that. So the 1920-21 famine is important as a kind of contrast to the Ukrainian famine,
4: just because the Soviet response to it was so different. And so by the time we get to 1932, what what is Ukraine's place in the Soviet Union at that time? What is its situation?
3: So Ukraine was a it was the second largest republic of the Soviet Union. Um and in In 1932, it had been more or less integrated into the Soviet state. It had been allowed in the 1920s a slightly different um, identity. So there was a kind of cadre of Ukrainian—they weren't weren't nationalist in the modern terms of the word, but kind of Ukrainian patriotic writers, artists— Um, politicians, historians, had been allowed to thrive in Ukraine and allowed to sort of work in Ukraine, even though they weren't Bolsheviks, which was something that did not happen in Russia. So in Russia, all through the 1920s, Lenin and then Stalin eliminated anybody who was not a Bolshevik from public life. Yet in Ukraine, they had allowed this group of people to exist, partly because They were nervous about Ukrainian nationalism, which, and they were nervous about the possibility of another Ukrainian civil war of the kind that had happened in 1917-18. And so they had allowed, so Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, but it had this slightly different identity. Um, And in 1932, Stalin took the opportunity of the wider Soviet famine, which there was a wider one that affected lots of people um, and was created really by the collectivization. And he issued a series of decrees that were really designed to sharpen the famine in Ukraine. And as I said, simultaneously, he also launched this attack on the Ukrainian elite. And those two things happened at the same time. And that was an attempt to kind of eliminate forever the idea that Ukraine was different. It was really the Sovietization of Ukraine. How do we make Ukraine the same as Russia? How do we eliminate any desire for national sovereignty? How do we eliminate any difference and really any non-Bolshevik
4: people or parties from public life? And that was the purpose of the famine. So when you talk about the purpose of the famine, you're saying that this famine was... Most famines are generally called by natural causes. You're saying this is a human...
3: This famine really had no natural causes. You can't point... I mean, the weather goes up and down in that part of the world and there are better and worse years. But there was nothing profoundly bad about 1932 or 1933. There was nothing that should have led to a catastrophic famine. You know, a famine that killed nearly 4 million people. The famine in Ukraine was caused, as I said, by a series of deliberate decisions. Um, those included decisions to blacklist particular villages and towns and farms that hadn't hadn't delivered sufficient quantities of grain to the state. It was caused by the demand for grain, which um, was known both by the leadership and by the Ukrainian Communist Party to be much too high. It was much more than Ukraine was able to produce. Um, and it was also caused by a policy that essentially those who couldn't, who weren't able to to contribute the you know the ridiculous amount of grain that was required should re- contribute other kinds of food. And what this led to in practice was a series of searches. Um, so ac- activists, both from Russia and Ukraine, went village by village and went into people's homes and literally confiscated all of their food. So people came into other people's houses, they took all of their food, and they took it away. And that's not a normal famine. So that, And it wasn't even just grain that they were taking away. They took away corn and they took away um, seeds that people were storing and they took away bread that was in the oven and they took away soup that was on the stove and they took away vegetables and they took away carrots and squash and beans so that really people had nothing at all to eat. And then the second thing that was done after that, they essentially closed the borders of Ukraine. So they took food out of people's homes. They shut the borders so that people couldn't leave to find food anywhere else. And that meant that people stayed inside Ukraine and died. And so
4: there's really no more direct way to cause a famine than that. And so did Stalin and the rest of Soviet leadership, these were deliberate policies, but did they anticipate quite what a terrible consequence they would have? and, And were they then aware of these consequences?
3: There's no doubt that they were aware um, one of the things I have in the book is a letter, series of letters actually, but a couple, one in particular, that were written by a very famous Soviet writer called Sholokhov, who writes to Stalin in 1933 and describes to him this terrible situation. He's actually not in Ukraine; he's just over the border in Kuban, but this is another part of the Soviet Union that is very heavily Ukrainian and which suffered uh, also quite a lot. And he describes what happens, and Stalin writes back to him a very important letter in which he says. Essentially the people who are starving deserve to die. You know, these are people who were standing in the way of our great Soviet project and they need to be eliminated. And, you know, they've done things that have led them to deserve this. And and that you can see from the mentality of that letter that he knew about it and that it seemed justified to him.
4: On the ground, so often there you talk about the activists who were involved in searching people's houses, taking their grain, who were these people and what motivated them to acts it would inevitably lead to mass deaths?
3: There were two kinds of activists. Some of them were people who were sort of outsiders and that meant either that they came from Russia, which some of them did, or that they came sometimes from Ukrainian cities. They were very often Russian-speaking and they were usually the ringleaders or the organizers and they tended to be kind of Communist Party enthusiasts. And they generally seem to have believed, and some of them, very few of them actually, but one or two of them have spoken about it since then and have described what was the mentality of that moment. And these were people who had been brought up to believe that, you know, the revolution was all important. Revolution was in danger. And the biggest threat to the revolution, the the sort of thing that was standing in the way of its success. And the reason why it wasn't succeeding. And remember, by the end of the 20s, it was clear that it wasn't succeeding. It wasn't bringing people paradise on earth and people were not richer. They were poorer and so on. So why was it succeeding? And the problem is the peasants, you know, the backwards looking you know, sort of Luddite, anti-Soviet, surly, uneducated peasants are standing in the way of our great revolution and, and progress. And therefore, the peasants need to be eliminated. And therefore, they are the barrier that's keeping all of us from success. And the reason why the workers are hungry is that the recalcitrant peasants are preventing them from progressing. And that mentality, coupled with a kind of blind faith in the system, urged on also by really a decade's worth of kind of fanatical, hateful rhetoric about the peasantry and about the so-called kulaks or the rich peasants, and then also about Ukrainians, um, shaped people's minds. I mean, you have to think today of fanatical groups fed on, you know, hatred who, who go off and do terrible things. We can all think of modern and 20th century, other 20th century parallels. That's essentially what this was. They were often helped by local people. And this is, of course, a tricky subject because these were Ukrainians, and their motives were mixed. And some of them were either ideologically in sympathy with the Russians and the outsiders. And some of them were local people who saw this as either a way to get food for themselves and their family, you know, a way to save themselves and not die, Um, a way to be inside with the regime and to eventually get power themselves. Um, Interestingly, one of the researchers that I worked with has done work on the kind of second and third generations after the famine, what happened in, in many of the famine villages. And she discovered that a lot of these local perpetrators did go on to become, I don't know, leaders of the local Soviet leaders of the village council. A lot of them did stay in power over subsequent decades. So this was a kind of People aligning themselves with power and you know, taking over. Some people did it because they were afraid. Um, there are lots of stories of people being, young people in particular, being recruited to go on activist brigades. You know, people would be picked up from school or from their sort of Communist Party youth groups and said, You have to do this. And they didn't always know whether they had a choice. So people were, you know, they wanted power, they wanted food, they were afraid. They didn't know that it was possible to protest. And of course, maybe they were right. I mean, if they had protested or stayed out, they too might have died. So people had really very bad choices. Um, So you can talk about some of them as perpetrators and some of them as sort of accidental perpetrators or
4: incidental perpetrators who were put in impossible positions. Did the famine affect people fairly equally or were certain groups more likely to starve and die than others?
3: Well, we know that certain parts of the country um, were the famine was much worse. And coincidentally or otherwise, the parts of the country where the famine wars were not the regions which in Ukraine had been traditionally susceptible to famine. So in the past, in 1920, as we discussed, but also in the 19th century, it was usually southern Ukraine. This is called Steppe Ukraine, which is a lot less water than the north, is usually the region that has suffers from famine or food shortages. And in this famine, that was not the case. And the regions that suffered were in the, the most were in the north. And this is the regions around Kiev and Kharkiv, which are the two biggest cities. And these were also the regions that had been, in the previous two decades, the most rebellious and the most anti-Soviet. And so although there is not a documentary connection between sort of being rebellious and suffering the most, there is certainly a coincidental connection. The worst regions that suffered were the ones that had been most involved in first in the 1917-18 uprisings or civil war, really, against the USSR. And then also in 1930 and 31, there were protests and actually even armed rebellion against collectivization. And those were the regions that were the most active. And those were the regions that wound up suffering the most during the
4: famine. What did the famine do to kind of human relationships within the Ukrainian countryside? How did it affect families and kind of social bonds?
3: Well, you have to look at really a group of things that happened between 1930 and 1933, starting with collectivization. Collectivization, which, of course, removed people from their farms. They moved them onto collective farms, but also involved an attack on peasant culture. And, for example, an attack on churches, the removal of church bells, the removal of icons. And the famine was the sort of acceleration of that process. So one of the results of the famine is that it certainly in its wake, everybody was collectivized. I mean, there was no more, it eliminated resistance to the Soviet Union and to Soviet agricultural policy. And it forced everybody onto collective farms. It was a kind of elimination of a centuries-old form of culture. So religious ceremonies even semi-pagan traditions and customs, ways of life, connections between people's traditional hierarchies of authority, all of that was eliminated both by collectivization and the famine. And you really had, by the middle of the 1930s, you had a kind of, um, you know, sort of clean sweep where whole parts of the countryside that had these very ancient traditions and customs and ways of life and ways of farming um, and religious beliefs that went back many centuries, were eliminated. And you really had a kind of industrialized countryside. If you look at maps from Ukraine before the Sovietization and Ukraine afterwards, you know, there are far fewer villages. You have um, empty fields where villages used to be. You know, have people. People were moved. The the geography of the landscape was changed dramatically um, by the famine, and the and the sort of mental geography, the way that people thought about their region and their connections to the land, were severed. It was a kind of forced modernization, um, but really almost the worst and most brutal form of it. You know, that kind of ripped people out of their traditional circumstances and put them in these semi-industrial farms, or actually many of them left the countryside altogether and went to the
4: cities. It changed Ukraine forever. You alluded earlier to the figure of 4 million people who lost their lives in the famine. How has that number been come to? And am I right to say there's still some kind of controversy about how many people were killed?
3: So there have been a lot of numbers that have been thrown around for many years. And one of the sources of the uncertainty is the fact that the famine was so thoroughly covered up. Um, The Soviet Union not only denied it at the time and not only sought to prevent news of it from getting out, um, Soviet authorities actually sought after the famine, they sought to repress even any historical markings of it, up to and including the alteration of the 1937 census. So when the census was published in 1937, or when it was um, before it was published, and the figures were known, Stalin quashed it because it showed a drop in the numbers of people, particularly in Ukraine. Not only, but but it was a very shocking and much lower number than was expected. And so he altered the census, and so Soviet census were literally altered for years to eliminate the demographic impact of the famine. More recently, in the last really five years, um, in the last decade, but even more recently. Um, Ukrainian demographers have gone back into the archives and looked at birth records and death records, which, unlike the overall census, uh, mostly weren't altered. Um, sometimes there are issues like, you know, doctors, when writing in death certificates, were told don't write that somebody died of famine or you know, write that they died of a heart attack. but. You know, there there are some fundamental numbers, numbers of people in a town that, you know, officials would need to know for particularly for planning reasons and so on, haven't been altered. And they have been able to use the kind of deeper demographic data to do an estimate of essentially how many people are missing. So given given the expected birth rate and given the expected death rate in Ukraine, how many people died? And the number they came up with is 3.9 million missing people. Um, And that's sort of, approximately 4 million people. I mean, up until then, people would say 10 million, people would say 7 million. They were, I mean, literally, they were making up numbers. But this, this 4 million number is based on very, very careful kind of county by county surveys of demographic data that wasn't part of that census and that for other kinds of practical reasons is probably more or less correct.
4: And so obviously, that's a horrific number of people who died. But But on the other side, how did people manage to survive the famine with all their food was taken away? How was it that millions of people managed to get through those months?
3: Some people simply had no opportunities, but there's a huge variety of ways, um, some very ugly, um, in which people survive. And, of course, one of the ways people survive is by becoming activists and joining the government and therefore getting some kind of ration. People survive by eating really the most incredible things, you know, bark, grass, trees, insects, frogs, family pets, leather, leather shoes. People would boil and eat, you know, find anything that could be remotely organic, um, people would People ate. Um, People survived by leaving or escaping before the border was closed or finding ways out through the border. They survived by getting to one of the big cities, by getting to Donetsk, which is the big industrial capital of Ukraine. In some parts of Ukraine, this is particularly true in some of the northern provinces where there were more forest. People had access to small animals and mushrooms and and other things. And remember, the Soviet state wasn't necessarily always very, it wasn't always um, efficient. And so there were, people would find holes. One of the most other common ways to survive was that people would have some contact to a Soviet institution of some kind, so a hospital or a school. So schools still existed and hospitals theoretically were still supposed to cure people. So if you could get into a hospital or often, you know, if you had a, a cousin or an aunt who worked at a hospital or who worked at a school. You could sometimes get rations that way. You know, sort of paradoxically, a lot of the bureaucrats of the state were often the people who could help people survive. So we always think of bureaucrats being evil. But actually, in this circumstance, you can see that anybody who had a contact in the bureaucracy might have some access to rationed food. And that often was uh, how people survived. there was one other way people survived, which is also, you know, in its way, really awful, which is that the Soviet Union in that era was really desperate for foreign currency. And so they set up these, they were originally foreign currency shops in the country. They were called Torgsin. There was a famous one in Moscow that The writer Bulgakov wrote about, where they would have goods that were otherwise unavailable were for sale for foreign currency. One of the things they did during the famine is they set up these shops across Ukraine, and they essentially said to people, if you have foreign currency, or if you have gold, or if you have silver in some form, you can come to this shop and you can exchange it for food. And that meant that the peasants um, searched back through their family treasures and I don't know crucifixes gold watches, um, in some cases, army medals, whatever their family might have from the past, they brought to these shops and they exchanged them for food. And, you know, the, the tragedy is this, of course, this is another way in which the peasants were deprived of their culture and of their past, which because they had to give up family heirlooms in order to stay alive. But again, those shops doing that was sometimes enough to keep people alive.
4: And one of the worst successes that has happened from time to time in families in history is cannibalism. To what extent did this take place in the Ukraine famine?
3: So there was absolutely, there was cannibalism. Um, Some of it wasn't cannibalism so much as people eating corpses. So it wasn't necessarily that people killed people in order to, although there was some of that too. Um, You know, cannibalism is a hard thing to talk about. People didn't want to be interviewed about it and they didn't speak about it very much. But there's quite a lot of documentary evidence in the archives of it. So when even, even then, even during the famine, when it happened, it was considered very shocking And people were, you know, reported it to the police and the police made records of it. And there are really from all over Ukraine, but again, particularly in the places where the famine was the worst, you have sort of documented examples of cannibalism and cannibals were often then arrested, sent to prison. There's even a memoir of um, a woman who in 1933, 1934, met. A group of Ukrainian women who were said to be cannibals. I mean, they were so they were in a a Soviet prison in the Solovetsky Islands in the far north. So they were they were arrested, they were punished and they were sent to camps. Although there's also, of course, many people who have more ambivalent feelings about them. I mean, they many of them were people who went mad from hunger. You know, hunger literally makes people crazy. And so it's not that people ignored it or didn't take it seriously, but in some level they're forgiven in historical memory because there was really no food at all.
4: Was there much kind of resistance from the Ukrainian peasantry in terms of maybe armed resistance or other forms to having all their food taken away.
3: So there was armed resistance during and after collectivization in 1930. Um, and this was much greater and much wider than usually is acknowledged or remembered. And it included armed resistance, so organized bands of men with guns. And remember, these are people who had fought in the Civil War a decade earlier, and many of them had guns you know, buried in their backyards or in their barns. And many of them had a memory of being partisans and fighting the Red Army in 1918, 1919. So people were mentally prepared to do that, and sometimes they were armed. So there was armed resistance. There was also very famously, uh, it was called these sort of women's rebellions. Local women, peasant women, because they knew they were less likely to be punished for it, would often come to attend collective farm meetings, and then as a group begin yelling, screaming, often physically attacking the party members who are trying to carry out collectivization and preventing them from doing it. These kinds of local sort of both spontaneous and organized peasant resistance was very strong. By the time the famine happened, and the the height of the famine is the spring of 1933, so the The kind of famine decisions were taken in the autumn of 1932, and then the famine reaches its peak in the spring and early summer of 1933 when people run out of food. By that time, most people are too weak to fight back. And so there's very little real resistance. And of course, one of the reasons for the famine was to destroy resistance because people who are very hungry aren't going to fight back. So there's not, although there's evidence of people, obviously people hid food from from the searches and they... Um, you know, they resisted in those kinds of ways. There isn't much armed resistance
4: after the winter of 1933. How did the famine eventually come to an end?
3: The famine essentially came to an end because the Soviet state decided to end it. In the summer of 1933, they stopped the grain collections Um, And they began, I mean, essentially what happened is the harvest came in 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 that summer. And instead of doing the mass collection of the harvest and the removal of grain as they had in the past, they let people keep the grain. So there was essentially after the peak, which is June and July of 1933, they decide to let people keep more of the harvest and the famine slowly ends. It actually doesn't come to a sharp end. There's still a lot of starvation. People are still dying and very unwell all through 1934. But the most dramatic moment, which is that spring, ends with the harvest, and they allow people to keep the harvest. So once again, it was state decisions, administrative decisions that bring it to an end. The important point, though, I should add is that there was no mass effort to save people. There were no mass feeding programs like there had been in 1921. They did allow people to keep more grain. In a few places, they agreed to lend people more grain. They lent people seed corn, but there was not a mass um, aid effort of the kind that you would
4: expect. So you mentioned earlier how the Soviet regime spent a long time trying to cover up this famine. Do you think that's the main reason why the event isn't really that well-known around the world compared to other 20th-century atrocities?
3: I think there are two reasons. I think one is the cover-up, as you say, which was quite successful. Um, It was successful inside the Soviet Union. Many people in Moscow, for example, didn't really know what had happened. People knew there had been some kind of famine, but nobody really knew exactly how or what the numbers were. I actually looked, and there's a famous book by uh, Roy Medvedev, there was a dissident who wrote one of the first unofficial histories of Stalinism in the 60s. And I went through his book to see what he'd written about the Ukrainian famine. There's not much. There's a sentence or two that says lots of people died, but we don't really know much about it. So even among dissidents in Moscow, it wasn't well known. But that meant that it was also very difficult for Western historians to know anything about it. And of course, until the 1990s, there, were no, there was no access to Soviet archives and people had no way of using it or, or seeing it. There was a kind of alternative history of the famine that existed all the way through in the form of diaries and memories. And there was an oral tradition that described it that existed in Ukraine. And then after the Second World War, sort of traveled outside of Ukraine with Ukrainians who left the USSR. uh, In 1945, there was a large number of people who were displaced by the war and remained outside of the USSR after the war was over. And they spoke and wrote and talked about the famine. But the second problem, the other reason why I think it's not well-known is that Ukraine itself, because Ukraine was not a state and it didn't have its own nation, it was not a sovereign sovereign entity, people were never really sure about it in the West Union. Is it really a country? Does it have a separate history from that of the Soviet Union? Can we really talk about it as a, as a different place? Uh, I think until 1991, when Ukraine became an independent state, it was basically considered to be part of Russia. And I would say that Russians considered it to be part of Russia and Western journalists based in Moscow considered it to be part of Russia. Even very recently, I've had people ask me, is Ukrainian really a different language? And it is, I promise you, because I do read Russian very fluently and I have a lot of trouble with Ukrainian. (laughs) But I can do it. Unfortunately, the archives are mostly in Russian. But but, um, the idea that it was a separate place with a separate history, Soviet Ukraine was different from Soviet Russia was new to many people. And I think that made it difficult to study as a separate subject, um, particularly since the reasons for it and the the motivation for it were caught up with this story of Ukrainian nationalism, which was a thing that to many people, you know it was a little bit like talking about Catalan nationhood. 30 years ago, or may I say Scottish nationhood 30 years ago, these were sort of not really credible ideas. And the idea of Ukraine as a separate thing was not credible to most people. People didn't think about it that way. And so I think that has also meant that the story of the famine was harder to tell. The Ukrainians who remembered it weren't really believed. Um, And it's really only now that Ukraine has its identity and it seems like a real place, and also that it's possible to use the archives. Does the story begin to makes
4: sense. And something that you talk about in the book is the role of Western journalists, some of them based actually within the Soviet Union, and how they didn't report on the famine. So why was it that they didn't convey the true picture of what was happening? Western journalists at the
3: time, based in Moscow, lived under very regimented conditions. All the articles that they wrote had to be submitted to Soviet censors before being sent abroad. And the permission to stay there was only granted really on the basis that they submit to this censorship and that they continue to observe it. I mean, some of them were, at the time, even very f- famous and well-known journalists. The most famous one was Walter Durante, the New York Times correspondent. But there were other well-known journals were based there was a very prestigious job to have, and people wanted to keep their job. And if it was generally understood that if you want to keep your job, you don't report on the famine because the Soviet Union doesn't want that story to get out. And so... Uh, there's, there, there are several quotes that are really quite shocking from journalists at the time, people saying things like, well, of course, everybody knew there was a famine and, you know, it wasn't really a secret in Moscow. We were aware that it was happening, but it just didn't make it into our, into our dispatches. There are a couple of interesting exceptions to that. One of them is a Welsh journalist called Gareth Jones who was not a Moscow-based correspondent, and this is why he was able to do this, who flew into the Soviet Union on a somewhat dodgy basis. Actually, he claimed to be Lloyd George's secretary or foreign advisor, which he sort of seems to have been and maybe sort of not. I mean, he had some relationship with Lloyd George, but not a very deep one. But anyway, he presented himself as that, therefore he got a visa. And he also asked for permission to go to Kharkiv, which was then the capital of Ukraine, um, in order to see a factory. He had some excuse why he was going there. And what he did was is he got on the train in Moscow and he got off before arriving in Kharkiv, and he walked along the train tracks. And this is, I think, in March 1933, really just as the famine is getting to be very bad. And he walked through northern Ukraine um, through a series of villages over three days before I think finally a policeman picked him up. And he saw the fa- he was I think the only Western journalist really to see the famine at its height in Ukraine. And he wrote a series of dispatches about it afterwards. He left the USSR and went back to London, and he wrote a series of stories about it, which were very shocking and very eye-catching and which were denounced by some of the Moscow press corps. Uh, in particular Walter Duranty, the New York Times correspondent, who actually wrote an article saying this Mr. Jones is, you know, a very nice but very naive man who's seen a few things and drawn some conclusions that don't add up. So even the true reports were undermined by some of the Moscow writers who were eager to keep their jobs and their positions in Moscow.
4: One of the big debates surrounding the famine is to what extent it can be called genocide. Having researched it, have you come to a conclusion about that? So I feel that if the
3: word genocide is meant to mean, as it was originally meant to mean by the person who invented the word, who's Raphael Lemkin, a Polish-Jewish lawyer, from, ironically from near Lviv, which is now part of Ukraine, although when he lived there, it was Poland. Um, the, The word genocide was meant to mean the destruction of a nation by another nation. And it was originally meant to mean not just killing people, but also the destruction of culture and churches and language, you know, what what does the destruction of a nation look like? And if you look at Lemkin's original definition, which he wrote about and described and uh, published books about in the 1920s and 30s, the Ukrainian famine absolutely fits into that category in the sense that it was an attempt to destroy... Not every single Ukrainian, but it was an attempt to destroy the nation of Ukraine or the sovereignty of Ukraine. Of course, it was genocide. If you take a narrower definition of genocide, which essentially means the UN Convention on Genocide, and which has come to be interpreted in particular as essentially meaning something like the Holocaust, in which somebody tries to kill every single member of a nation, then Ukraine doesn't quite fit that. You know, I almost feel like it's now time to have another less loaded word that describes mass state violence or mass state destruction. Um, because there really are a lot of incidents in the 20th century, and I'm sure there are going to be more in the 21st century, that maybe don't fit the UN's technical definition of genocide, but certainly fit into the same category of broad mass murder. Uh, and I think the Ukrainian famine is one of them.
4: And one thing I thought was interesting is that I saw actually, was only a few days ago in the news that um, within Russia, Stalin had been voted the most important or certainly shown in a very positive light in a Russian poll. And it, he still seems to have a lot of admirers within Russia and also some in the West. How do you think that's compatible with his clear role in instigating this mass violence?
3: Well, look, I mean, it's, in my mind, it's not compatible at all. And I think it's actually indicative of what's wrong in Russia right now. When you, when you look back in a given country's history, you can choose the moments when you think your country was great. Um, and you can choose your heroes, uh, and the current Russian government, led by the current Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin, have decided that the moment that they remember as the height of Russian greatness is 1945, the end of the Second World War, when Stalin occupied half of Europe. And they celebrate this moment. They have an annual parade in which they wave Soviet flags and they sing Soviet songs. And this moment is what has inculcated people as when we were great. There are other moments they could choose, and there are other kinds of heroes they could have. Russia essentially invented the modern human rights movement. Um, Russia has a great liberal tradition going back to the 19th century. Um, but those aren't the aspects of Russian history that the current government wants to emphasize or that it teaches in schools. And instead, you have an inculcation of the idea that Russian military power and Russian really imperial power, that these were the moments when Russia was great. And they've also incidentally conflated Russia with the Soviet Union, which they don't have to do. You can imagine a Russia which doesn't see the Soviet past as as its most heroic moment, but looks, looks at other things, other moments. But yes, I mean, what this essentially does is the role of Stalin and the memory of Stalin have been heightened and praised and the story of the Ukrainian famine virtually suppressed. It's not known in Russia at all. And those aren't accidents. You have a sort of politics of history right now in Russia that is designed to promote imperialism and to downgrade the idea that the Soviet Union was ever responsible for anything negative towards any of its neighbors in the past.
4: Just one final question. And um, clearly, Russian-Ukrainian relations are very, very fraught at the moment and have been for the past few years. Does the story of the history of the famine feed into that in any way?
3: So yes, the famine is an important piece of background to what's happening in Ukraine in, in a number of ways. For one, the famine helps explain some things about Ukraine, why there's so much mistrust of institutions in the country, why it's so corrupt, why it has such a weak political class and political leadership. And part of that is because the political class and the political leadership were destroyed in the 1930s and subsequent leaders of Ukraine were afraid. Remember, the mass starvation was accompanied by an assault on the elite and an assault on the Ukrainian both intellectual and political ruling classes. And the people who replaced them were ever after very, very cautious. There's a lot of suspicion, even to this day in Ukraine, of the state and of state institutions. And, you know, people always remark on how odd it is that Ukrainians are so good at organizing what we now call civil society. And they're really good at organizing demonstrations and non-governmental organizations and informal groups. And they're not very good at organizing the Ukrainian state. And this is, of course, Part of the explanation is the famine and the legacy of the famine and the years after that. But I also think the famine helps explain why Russian-Ukrainian relations are so fraught. And part of it is just to do with memory. So one of the things that Ukrainians do remember the famine, mostly they remember it because it's in their families and their grandparents told them. And they have begun to tell the story of the famine in a very um really quite remarkable way in the last decade there's been an enormous money has been put into the archives and major projects of publication hundreds and hundreds of documents have been published there have been a number of national oral history projects that have going back 20 25 years in which anybody who has any recollection of the famine has been asked to speak. And so there's been a huge national project designed to restore memory of the famine. And in Russia, there's been exactly the opposite. For a time, it was an attempt not really to deny the famine, but to kind of downplay it. And now we're back to a moment of denial. Um, You can now get Russian sources saying it never happened, it's imaginary, and the the only people who do say it happened are Nazis. I mean, literally. So you have a pushback. And in a way, what it is, I think— coming from is once again the Russians not wanting to see the Ukrainians as having any kind of separate history. You know, the Russians prefer to see Ukraine as part of Russia. And I think really until the Russians have a deeper sense of Ukraine's separate history, the relationship between the two
4: countries will be very difficult. That was Anne Applebaum. Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it's due to be published next month by Doubleday. And you can read a written version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History Magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have pieces on the Knights Templar, Edward VIII's experiences in the First World War, and Bloody Mary's religious persecutions, among other things. Look out for our October issue now in all good newsagents, and on the Kindle, iPad,
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin Guarantees, everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or his free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details.
4: Well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in again on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website... HistoryExtra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries, and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.